This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I will briefly outline today's first session and then we'll jump right in together. So today's session again is called What is Cancer? And it will start with this course intro that we're doing right now. After that, uh, Shuggin is going to give a lecture, which is coming up momentarily now, on what is cancer. And then we're going to have a half an hour panel where you will meet uh, about 10 hematologists, oncologists who will each tell you in turn about what they do within our field. And then we will end with 20 minutes of Q&A to round out this evening. So with that, I'll say very nice to meet you all. And I'll pass it over to Dr. Aurora. Thank you so much, Sam. So welcome everybody, good evening. Thank you so much for allowing us the opportunity to together journey through this course on cancer today. As I mentioned, my name is Dr. Shagan Aurora and I'm a malignant hematologist at the University of California, San Francisco. We have an exciting mini school for you starting today and running for five more sessions as Dr. Ronfield just introduced for all of us. And we've selected some of our very best colleagues to teach all of us and shine light on this disease state from the genesis of cancers of the cancer cell to the cure and the steps we're taking in the future. Today, I'll be talking with you about what is cancer. Cancer in 2022, some key terms, what causes cancer, the workup and detection of cancer, modalities to treat cancer in 2022, moving forward after cancer treatment, and what is next in cancer discovery and treatment. Really excited to get jump right in. So let's talk about the definition of cancer. Cancer is a group of diseases characterized by uncontrolled growth and spread of abnormal cells. It is caused by external and internal factors which may act together to initiate or promote carcinogenesis. I pulled this right from the Merriam-Webster dictionary, which says that the definition of cancer is a malignant tumor of potentially unlimited growth that expands locally by invasion and systematically by metastases. I like this on the right side as well, that the Latin word cancer meant crab, which was also given as a name to several diseases, not just what we currently today call cancer. One of the diseases was the abnormal spreading mass of tissue, which we call a tumor. And a possible explanation for this is that the Romans thought that some tumors looked like many-legged crabs. So cancer is a group of more than 200 diseases, which originates from different parts of the body. You can see here depicted on the right side that there are several different organs which are in, potentially can get involved, uh, can develop a cancerous lesion and a tumor. This includes the lung, colon, breast, prostate, skin, brain, bone marrow and lymph nodes, just to name a few, but truly any part of the body can unfortunately develop cancer at some point. So there are many different subtypes from each organ of cancer, and it's truly named from the cell of origin. So I'm gonna share with you an example of breast. From, there's many different types of breast cancer that really relate to what the cell of origin is that initially developed a mutation grew out of control and caused cancer. For example, in this picture, when the tumor, when a cancer cells develops in these ducts, it is called ductal cancer. When it develops in these lobules, it's called lobular carcinoma. Sometimes it can have a combination of both ductal and lobular, and then it is called termed mixed. 
Sometimes it's called inflammatory breast cancer if it comes from more inflammatory-based tissues. And another form of breast cancer is mucinous forms of breast cancer. So all of these different types have different names and are truly named by the cell of origin, which our pathologist helps us identify. So let's talk a, jump right into talking about epidemiology of cancer in 2022. Here is a chart breaking down the estimated number of new cases of cancer subtypes in males and females from 2022. Important to note that traditionally, much of cancer data is projected in a binary way, but does not reflect those who are non-binary. But with the data that we have, you can see on the right that in females, breast cancer is the most frequently diagnosed cancer. And on the left, you can see that 21% of new cancer diagnoses in males is due to prostate cancer. And for both, the second and third most commonly diagnosed malignancies are lung and colon cancer. This is really interesting because we have active screening mechanisms for prostate, breast, and colon cancer, and also for persons who are at high risk for lung cancer. Cancer is around us. Most of us will have someone, usually someone close to us, who have been diagnosed with cancer at some point in our lifetimes. Really strikingly, over our lifetime, one in three people will develop a type of cancer. And as you can see on the right, for every seven deaths that occur worldwide, one of those are due to cancer, with lung cancer being our biggest opponent. On this slide, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the SEER database. SEER stands for, and that's spelled S-E-E-R, as you can see in the top, stands for the National Cancer Institute, which is in Bethesda, Maryland, NCI's Surveillance Epidemiology and End Results Program, and it is the authoritative source for cancer statistics in the United States. It collects data from around the country. On the left, and so let's go through some data that we have from the SEER database, specifically regarding epidemiology in cancer diagnoses in the United States. On the left picture, the top line depicts the overall incidence of the diagnosis of cancer, which from the 1990s to now have slightly decreased. And the bottom lines are showing the trend in overall mortality, which has also fortunately decreased. The right picture is broken down by the binary male on the left and female on the right and rates of different cancers over time. As you can see, Overall, the rates of mortality are decreasing in many cancers for both males and females. I'd like to draw your attention to two things. You can see a blip in the rate of prostate cancer in the early 1990s, really sharp line up here. This likely reflects the initiation of a robust prostate cancer screening program rather than a true increase in the rates of prostate cancer. The second thing I'd like to point out is that the red line reflects the rates of lung cancer, the rate of lung cancer in red, which is clearly decreasing, likely reflecting a decrease in tobacco use in the United States. And in this last picture, you can see that for both males and females, with the advent of different screening and treatment modalities, many cancer-related deaths have been averted. The red portion shows the trajectory we were on as relates to the mortality from cancer in the United States. We're not on that trajectory anymore. The blue line is where we are currently at. Thankfully, to, due to better screening mechanisms, better health in our, in our community, along with much better uh, diagnostic strategies and treatments. All right, we're gonna talk a little bit about key terms as it relates to cancer. When I started my subspecialty training in hematology and oncology, I found myself swimming in a new language. 
It took time and repetition to understand the terms used in hematology and oncology and the meaning of the terms and how important they are to be able to discuss the disease with my colleagues and importantly with patients and their families. I wanted to share a few definitions with you to help us through the next six weeks of this mini medical school course. So first, cancer. It's a big word, but let's break down its meaning. I discussed it a little bit earlier, but a simpler definition is cancer is a group of diseases which causes cells in the body to change and grow out of control. Next, tumor. Tumor is an abnormal lump or mass of tissue. Tumors can be benign, so not cancer related, or can be malignant, cancer related. To break that definition down, a benign tumor is an abnormal growth that is not cancer and therefore does not spread to other parts of the body. A malignant tumor is a mass of cancer cells that turns into a clump or a tumor that may invade nearby tissues or spread, also known as metastasize, to distinct, uh, distant areas of the body. Metastatic as our next word. Cancer that is spread from a primary site from where it started to other organs. Next, let's talk about biopsy. Biopsy is a way that we diagnose cancer, and it is, it is the removal of a sample of tissue by different modalities, which I'll go into in a future slide. Next, therapies. First, chemotherapy is a general term used for cancer-fighting therapy, and it is treatment. The definition is treatment that kills cancer cells. Next, another type of cancer-fighting therapy is immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is treatment that uses the body's immune system to fight cancer. Last, monoclonal antibody therapy. These are man-made antibodies designed, uh, designed to target unique cell surface antigens, cancer-specific. The ultimate goal of monoclonal antibody therapy is that it is very targeted to just the tumor cells and not to surrounding healthy tissues. The next terms I would like to go through are these ones. So first, Things you'll hear through the next six weeks include solid tumor oncology as compared to malignant hematology. So you must know, you might know that, um, that our subspecialty is called hematology and oncology, and many doctors practice both of these two diseases, but they're really two separate entities. Solid tumor oncology is the study of solid tumors. So those that arise from organs such as the lung, breast, prostate, liver. Malignant hematology is a study of cancers that are more of a liquid, which originate from the blood or lymphatic system. So just a good thing to keep separated in our minds is the difference between solid tumor oncology and malignant hematology. Both of these are cancers, just they have a different form in the body and therefore they move differently, act differently and are treated differently. Carcinomas are solid cancers that are, occur from the skin or tissues that line internal organs. Sarcoma are solid cancers that occur from the bone, cartilage, fat, muscle, blood vessels, or other connective tissues. You will hear these different terms as well. Next, the two types of uh, the two main types of liquid cancers include leukemia, which are liquid cancers from the cells of the blood and bone marrow and lymphoma, liquid cancers from the cells of the immune system and typically appear within the lymphatic system or lymph nodes. There are a variety of technical terms which start with Latin prefixes. It stands for where the cancer began, such as adeno meaning gland, hepato meaning liver, and osteo meaning bone. Okay, now that we have that background, we can start putting some of these terms together. 
An example, for a cancer of the bone, we combine the prefix osteo to sarcoma, and that's called, therefore, osteosarcoma, a cancer of the bone. Similarly, the prefix adeno, a cancer of glands, is called adenocarcinoma. So, for example, one of the, the picture I showed earlier of the breast cancer, you put together the cancer of the glands of the breast will be called a breast adenocarcinoma. All right, now that we've had that background knowledge, let's take a deep dive into cellular data. Really getting into what causes cancer in a superficial level, and you will get a deeper dive in one of our next sessions, which I'm very excited for you to hear more of. So we all start life as one single cell. Cells are the building blocks of all of the tissues in our body. Human body is composed of trillions of cells that vary in size, shape, and function. Then that cell divides and forms two, four, eight cells, and on and on. This process is an intricate chemical dance called mitosis or cell division. The cells form tissues, tissues form organs, and these organs form us. When cells become old, they are programmed to self-destruct and die in a controlled way. This process is called apoptosis, and a very delicate balance exists for when cells are created and when they are supposed to die. When they live out their life, they do, they do their job and they are supposed to then die and more cells get formed. Sometimes in a neighborhood of a trillion cells, something goes wrong. Maybe an individual cell's sets of instructions or DNA acquired a typo or a mutation due to a factor we may not be aware of, maybe due to an external factor. This typo or mutation is not something the cell was born with, but leads to the formation of a new fingerprint. This is called a mutation. Most of the time, the cell or body senses its mistakes and actually shuts itself down and stops dividing. But sometimes these abnormal cells bypass the sensing mechanisms or what is known as the tumor suppressor genes. And that one mutated cell becomes several. And with every division, the incorrect instructions or mutations are passed along to the cell's offspring. To recap that process again, cancer develops when the balance of division and programmed cell death is disrupted and cells grow out of control results in cells that do not die on time and continue to multiply until a massive cells or a tumor develops. Typically, years after that one cell transformed, one might see your doctor about a new symptom that one is experiencing or the finding of a lump in the breast. Every cancer has a different timeline as to when it forms, when it presents in the body from the time when that initial mutation occurred. The trillion dollar question is, why does this happen? What causes the mutations to occur? There are a few causes that we know about, including chemical or environmental factors, such as tobacco as a cause for lung cancer, sun exposure as a cause for skin cancer, specifically one specific one is squamous cell carcinoma of the skin, extremely high doses of radiation exposure, such as those that occur with things like disasters, such as Chernobyl, which can develop into many different types of cancers, and others such as asbestos exposure can lead to the development of mesothelioma. Excessive alcohol consumption can lead to squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus. Other types of factors that cause cancer include viral factors, which are also really interesting to study. For example, human papillomavirus is known to cause cervical cancer. Now we have a vaccine available to prevent human papillomavirus and therefore prevent cervical cancer. 
Epstein-Barr virus or EBV is known to cause nasopharyngeal cancer and is associated with many non-Hodgkin lymphomas. Hepatitis B virus is known to be uh, known to cause hepatocellular carcinoma and another type of virus for which we have a vaccine against to prevent one from ever developing this virus, ever getting this infection and therefore ever developing hepatocellular carcinoma. HIV is known to be associated with Kaposi sarcoma. And next, let's move on to what uh, genetic mutations that are inherited on the top and on the bottom, genetic mutations that are randomly acquired or somatic in an individual cell and therefore not hereditary. I want to point out that inherited genetic mutations that are associated with cancers um, also known as a germline mutation, occurs in only around 10%, 5 to 10% of cancer diagnoses, so it's not common. But some of the more common types of inherited cancers include those associated with BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations uh, developing into breast, ovarian, and pancreatic cancers, DNA mismatch repair genes, which develop into Lynch syndrome and colorectal cancers, and a TP53 mutation, which is a very important tumor suppressor gene, which can develop into, with one, one who has this, can lead to the development of Lee-Fromani syndrome. Moving on to the randomly acquired types of mutations, which is the most common cause for cancer, as there's too many to list as far as mutations go, but it is the most common cause of cancer. And more often than not, it is a randomly acquired mutation that leads to the development of cancer diagnosis in a person. So next, how do you get to the diagnosis of cancer? Imaging like CT scans or MRIs or even some blood work may be suggestive of a cancer diagnosis, but these modalities cannot diagnose cancer. Sometimes we say when the tumor is the rumor, the issue is the tissue, bringing home the point that it is really the tissue biopsy that gives us the final diagnosis. Ultimately, this is from a physician that you'll likely not see are pathologists. They take a tissue biopsy and look at it under a microscope. And through this course, we look forward to introducing you to and learning from our pathology colleagues. More frequently, there are several pathologists looking at a biopsy slide, including learners, all discussing together the features of the cells that they are seeing under the microscope, sharing ideas with each other and picking up different things that one person on their own may not see. The pathologist determines the diagnosis of the cancer, provides critical information as to the primary site, and allows for the initial selection of sometimes targeted therapy when available. So how is this tissue obtained? There are four main ways tissues may be obtained or a biopsy is done. First is fine needle, which just like it is called fine needle, it's a very small needle that is inserted into a tumor and aspirates out a few cells. It's not really a biopsy and what you end up receiving on the pathologist's end are just something that looks like this. It can be a, what's can be sometimes called a scanty specimen, a very small amount of cells, but often cancer can be diagnosed this way, but sometimes it cannot. So fineal aspiration is the least invasive and uses a very small, uh, a very small needle. It's a very important modality that we have though to diagnose cancer. A core needle biopsy, as depicted in the second picture, is a larger needle, which essentially has a hole in the middle of it, like a core. 
it's slightly larger. I mean, when you compare these two, it's not that much larger, but it is slightly larger and usually helpful to obtain really beautiful pathology specimens or biopsies that the pathologist can use. They can check the architecture of the tissue. They can see the structures underneath the microscope. And this is really helpful to the pathologist to help give us the right diagnosis. It also provides extra, extra tissue as well so that additional stains can be done. The third type of biopsy gives us the biggest biopsy, and this is called a surgical biopsy, where sometimes a person may need to go to the operating room given anesthesia to remove a tumor. Frequently, this is needed for lymph nodes and also for tumors that may be harder to access from the skin. Both fine needle and core biopsies are usually very useful and tumors that are easily accessible from the skin itself. And lastly, sometimes you can have tumor cells that are shed, such as in bladder cancer. Sometimes you can find, pick it up in the urine or in hematologic cancers or bone marrow cancers. Sometimes you can find those cells circulating in the blood. So sometimes just a blood test is useful to diagnose these cancers. And that's particularly true for leukemias. So here's a schematic from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which as a side note, is a great resource for both patients and clinicians. It has the most up-to-date workup and treatment strategies and is actively updated by national experts in each individual disease type. Also included on the NCCN is education regarding supportive care recommendations and symptoms such as nausea and pain and how best to manage anemia in the setting of a diagnosis of cancer. This is just a side note, but I encourage you to take time to review this NCCN site and ask your doctor any questions you may have. Okay, so on this specific NCCN site, I'd like to present an example of the critical information that the pathologist provides in the diagnosis of cancer. So for example, if a patient gets diagnosed with breast cancer, the pathologist will tell us if it's the ductal type, lobular type, mixed or metaplastic. They will then obtain these stains called ER or PR stains in order to help us tar provide targeted therapy to, to the person who has this cancer. And lastly, they will also give us information about the HER2 status. And this is done by doing different stains on the tissue itself. And from here, we can then provide the best types of treatments for our patients. All right, so we talked about pathology. Next, we'll talk about imaging modalities. Imaging modalities really define the extent of the disease. Common imaging tests that are used to help diagnose cancer include x-rays, are helpful to screen for cancers. Ultrasound is very useful to, especially when it comes to breast and thyroid types of cancers, a non-invasive type of study. Then we have different types of nuclear studies, particularly PET CT scans, which light up tumors under this type of study called a PET CT. It attaches a radio tracer to sugar and lights up in areas of tumors. Just to let you know, there's an excessive amount here in the bladder because that radio tracer accumulates within the bladder itself. It doesn't mean that there is a tumor here. Next is a CT scan, which is a very helpful study to get 3D images of the tissues and organs inside the body. MRIs give us sometimes a deeper dive look and particularly useful for the spinal cord or vertebral bodies. And then we have other subspecialized types of imaging modalities, which we'll learn more about in an upcoming session. To understand staging, we use the TNM staging method specifically for solid organ tumors. 
I wanted to pause and mention that the staging system for liquid tumors like leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma is different and does not use the typical stage one to four like solid organ tumors does, but back to TNM. T stands for the tumor. So in the every single different type of cancer has slightly different ways of staging by the TNM, but tumor based upon the size of the tumor typically N stands for lymph nodes, so whether or not lymph nodes are involved, and M for metastases. This is then put together by pathology and imaging findings, and based on the TNM staging for each cancer, such as lung or breast, each cancer is given a stage of one, two, three, or four. And what you can see here on the picture in the right is that in this case of a liver cancer, Stage one as depicted in, is depicted in the green circle, so really localized just within the organ itself. Stage two is here in the light blue circle, which is slightly more advanced or early locally advanced. Stage three in the dark blue circle means it's spread outside of the initial, it's late locally advanced, so spread outside of the liver itself, um, but not quite yet at distant organs. And stage four is the red circle, the biggest circle depicting that when the tumor has spread from the primary site to this red circle area or outside of the primary site, it is metastatic and therefore um, in a stage four. All right, next we'll move on to the next major step in cancer care and treatment. And this is how is cancer treated? For every cancer, treatment options are different. I wanted to start by mentioning this Time article from 2001. This was almost our first real targeted therapy, which took a bone marrow cancer called CML, which had initially very high mortality rates, and shifted it to a completely controllable cancer with just a pill. This led to a huge paradigm shift in, the can in cancer treatments, and I remember when this came out back in 2001. So treatments of cancer have been really exciting. And this is a timeline of the turning points in modern oncology, starting with way back in the day where initially they started doing surgical treatments. The first really well-described surgical treatment was curing somebody with ovarian cancer. Next, Marie and Pierre Curie started to treat tumors by using x-rays in the 1900s. In the 1940s, we started using chemotherapy or anti-tumor drugs for the treatment of hematologic and solid tumors. In the 1980s, we started using targeted therapies such as tyrosine kinase inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies directed to specific tumors and specific mutations or molecular alterations. And now we're in an era of, uh, of using immune therapy, which initially started with the advent of IL-2 followed by checkpoint inhibitors um, and the use of monoclonal antibodies to stimulate the immune system against cancer. It's been a really exciting time and I look forward to learning more about these different modalities, especially in our course called How is Cancer Treated? Just to go over an overview about the different ways that we treat cancer, it really depends on the type of cancer stage and history. It is very individualized to each person and we all follow a team-based approach and including using tumor board presentations. Typically cases are discussed in a tumor board together with the pathologist who, as I mentioned, reviews the biopsy slides and gives us the diagnosis a radiologist who reviews the pictures and really helps determine whether or not it appears that the tumor has spread from its primary site, a surgical oncologist 
who consider surgical op options seen here in this left picture, a radiation oncologist who considers radiation treatment uh, options as seen in the middle picture, and the hematologist oncologist who considers several different systemic therapy options. From these tumors, patient-centric treatment decisions are made, which are then presented to the patient typically at the next appointment. So to consolidate, the multidisciplinary management of a patient with suspected cancer starts with the patient presenting typically with symptoms, followed by dedicated imaging to identify and characterize a tumor, followed by biopsy of the tumor and pathology, including specialized studies to assess the ability to provide targeted therapies, all leading to a tumor board discussion where clinical decisions are discussed and leading back to a consultation with the patient and ultimately ending with a therapeutic plan that both patient and doctor are on board with. Now, after treatment is done, congratulations, the oncologist says you're in remission. And what happens next after treatment? After this, the goal is to have the person return back to their new normal life and move forward with the best quality of life. That is every oncologist's goal. The first step is surveillance, whose goal is to improve disease-free and overall survival. On average, surveillance period after many different types of cancers is around five years. At that five-year mark, on average, um, the doctor may say you are cured. And I say on average because it may be different for different types of cancer. The doctor says you're cured. The next and ultimate step is to participate in a survivorship program to help improve quality of life and promote longevity. There's also evidence of disparities in outcomes and for various reasons, disadvantaged people sometimes do not do as well. These topics, surveillance, survivorship, and outcome disparities will all be explored in great detail during our class named What Happens After. So today in 2022 is probably the most exciting time in history for the treatment of cancer. And that excitement just continues to grow. Options that did not exist a few months ago certainly did not exist a few years ago. And in a very special session named What Are the Newest Developments? You will learn more about what the future holds uh, in cancer care in our country and particularly at UCSF. And with that, I'd like to say thank you to you all and we look forward to continuing on this class with you. Thank you so much, Shagan, for that awesome uh, whirlwind introduction to hematology, oncology. Um, and for everyone watching, that was meant to be a tasting menu for you for the five weeks to come. Please don't worry if you came out of that talk not remembering everything that was discussed. It was a lot of information. Um, but we are excited to explore everything you heard about further in the coming weeks. Um, so right now we are lucky enough to have uh, several oncologists with us from UCSF who are each in turn going to explain a little bit about their particular type of cancer or field that they uh, work in. And then we'll have a Q&A right after. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to our first panelist. Uh, my name is Hugh Kong. I'm a head of medical oncologist, which means I care for people with cancers in mouth, throat, voice box, salivary glands, and thyroid gland. Pedernal cancer is not a very common cancer in the U.S., but it is the sixth most common cancer worldwide. Cigarette smoking is the most well-known risk factor for head and neck cancers, but cancers coming from human papillomavirus infection uh, have been in rapid rise for the last 10 to 20 years, especially in the U.S., Head and neck cancer patients are best taken care of by a multidisciplinary team of head and neck surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, dentists, speech therapists, and nutritionists. And I've been very fortunate to work with a great team at UCSF. Thank you. 
So my name is Laura Huppert and I'm an oncology fellow in the breast medical oncology group. So I care for patients with breast cancer. Um, and as many of you already know, breast cancer is the most common cancer in women, accounting for approximately one third of all female cancers. Approximately one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in her lifetime. Um, and while the vast majority of breast cancers occur in females, um, it can also occur in males and approximately 2,500 cases of male breast cancer occur in the U.S. every year as well. Um, so the primary risk factors for breast cancer are being female and older age. So breast cancer is typically diagnosed after it's detected um, by a patient feeling a mass um, or by screening mammogram. Um, and then we typically get a biopsy of the mass and check the receptors and check the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor and amplification of something called the HER2 protein. Um, and based on a combination of receptors, um, that determines um, the type of breast cancer, um, which is important for treatment. Um, and if the breast cancer is localized to the breast and to the lymph nodes in the armpit, it's called early stage breast cancer. And we treat that with the combination of surgery, radiation, and systemic therapy. Um, but if it's spread beyond the um, lymph nodes in the armpit, um, it's called metastatic disease. And we treat it with systemic therapies, um, such as hormone therapies, chemotherapy, and immunotherapy. Um, so we've made a lot of advances in breast cancer in the last few decades um, and hope to continue to do so in the future. Thank you for having us tonight. Hi, everyone. I'm next. Um, my name is Mira Raghavan. I am an oncology fellow training to be a thoracic oncologist, which is a cancer doctor who sees patients with lung cancer and other cancers in the chest, such as mesothelioma. Lung cancer is the third most common cancer in the United States after breast and prostate cancer, although unfortunately it is the cancer with the highest mortality rate in both men and women, accounting for nearly one quarter of all cancer-related deaths. Smoking cigarettes is the biggest risk factor for developing lung cancer, but the rate of lung cancer in patients who have never smoked is rising for reasons that we don't yet fully understand. In the U.S., up to one-fifth of all patients diagnosed with lung cancer have never smoked cigarettes. The U.S. Preventative Guidelines recommends anyone with a smoking history of at least 20 years undergo screening for lung cancer with an annual CT scan. And screening for lung cancer is important because if it's caught early, it may still be curable with surgery or radiation therapy. However, we still have a lot to do work to do to make sure everyone at risk is undergoing appropriate screening as our national screening rates are still low, particularly for patients of underrepresented racial and ethnic backgrounds. Lung cancer is broadly categorized into a few subtypes. The most common are adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and small cell carcinoma. These categories are defined by what the cells look like when we look at them under a microscope. Um, however, we're learning more and more about specific changes, otherwise known as mutations, that take place in the DNA of normal cells to turn them into cancer cells. And across many cancer types, we sometimes identify one specific mutation that might be the predominant driver of the cancer's ability to form, and for which we may be able to use a specific, otherwise known as targeted therapy that targets just that mutation. In lung cancer in particular, we have identified a number of these driver mutations, and we now have developed specific targeted therapies for over eight of these mutations, the most of any type of cancer. For this reason, all patients diagnosed with specifically advanced stage lung cancer should undergo molecular testing of their tumor to see if they have one of these mutations, as the results are crucial to deciding on treatment options. In terms of treatment, for early stage lung cancer, we usually recommend surgery or in some cases radiation therapy with the goal of curing the cancer entirely. And some patients will also get chemotherapy or radiation therapy after surgery, depending on the size of the tumor and whether it has spread to nearby lymph nodes. For advanced stage lung cancer, we recommend systemic therapy. Um, the goal of treatment for advanced stage lung cancer is to control the cancer for as long as possible, but unfortunately we don't yet have the tools to cure it. 
Systemic therapy may comprise of chemotherapy, immunotherapy, a combination of these, or targeted therapies, as I mentioned, depending on the results of that molecular testing. And as you may have heard, immunotherapy is a newer therapy that harnesses the immune system to go after the cancer, and it can be particularly effective in treating lung cancer. And although lung cancer remains the deadliest type of uh, type of cancer, with advances in immunotherapy and targeted therapies, the outcomes for lung cancer have improved dramatically over the last decade, and death rates from lung cancer are actually declining in this country. And I hope to see that continue that trend continue throughout my career. Thanks so much. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining. My name is Andrew Coe, and I have the privilege of serving as part of the GI oncology program at UCSF. So GI is refers to gastrointestinal uh, cancers. So um, if you think about cancers that arise from the GI or digestive tract after you eat some food or drink that glass of wine, once that go goes beyond the, the oral cavity, head and neck, the areas that Dr. King um, addressed, we're talking about um, the esophagus and stomach, which is more common in Asian countries, actually, than in uh, the U.S. and Western um, uh, countries. But we do see... Uh, quite commonly, particularly cancers right where the, where the esophagus meets the stomach um, for folks who've had a longstanding history of uh, reflux or heartburn. Um, and then we go down into the small intestine, which surprisingly, uh, for maybe unclear reasons, even though that's very extensive um, uh, real estate in terms of a, a lot of yardage of small intestine, cancers are relatively uncommon in that area. But when we get down to the colon, and then the rectum and anus. So colorectal cancers are actually very, very common, but are preventable um, by virtue of uh, colonoscopies. So that's one of the cancers where there is a screening modality to try to pick up sort of cancers in their pre-malignant stage. Um, so polyps can be removed, for example. Um, and it's kind of interesting how in colorectal cancer, um, we're really seeing an increased uh, propensity for earlier onset um, uh, colorectal cancer, which may inform starting screening uh, at an earlier age. And so certainly with high profile um, uh, inside cases like Chadwick Boseman and others, uh, I think there's a lot of interest and focus in terms of uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, and then when we think about other organs that are um, part of the digestive tract, um, uh, such as the pancreas uh, and the liver, uh, pancreas cancer is one of the areas that I focus on quite a lot. And that certainly is one of the um, cancers associated with very poor mortality and uh, is uh, diagnosed really often at a stage beyond which it's uh, operable. And probably by the end of this decade, it will become the second leading cause of cancer-related mortality uh, behind only um, lung cancer. So that may not be on as many people's radar screens, and we don't really have a screening uh, tool for that. Um, but as our population ages, we know that that is um, certainly a cancer that uh, afflicts uh, many folks. And then liver cancer, which includes cancers of the liver as well as the bile ducts that comprise the network of um, uh, the uh, biliary system within the liver. Uh, these are uh, cancers that are also quite common worldwide, especially, and associated with uh, hepatitis B and hepatitis C, uh, as well as um, not, as well as a uh, uh, alcoholic-related um, uh, cirrhosis, and even sort of uh, a non-alcoholic um, steatohepatitis uh, related to unhealthy eating patterns uh, and obesity. So I'm not going to get too much into, because this is such a, a wide array of different types of cancers, obviously treatment paradigms are quite uh, different for all of these. Generally, earlier stages 
earlier stage cancers are um, uh, operable, um, although some of these uh, cancers, like cancers of the esophagus and anus, we're now making uh, moves towards trying to definitively treat with non-operative approaches. And sometimes we can uh, affect long-term remissions and even cures with just a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. Obviously, as we move to more advanced stages of the cancer, um, where it is um, uh, not operable or has uh, metastasized or spread, the mainstay of treatment there uh, involves chemotherapy, um, um, in some cases, immunotherapy, but we're, for the most part, not as far as advanced as uh, our colleagues, for example, in uh, the lung cancer world, as you heard from Dr. Raghavan, um, uh, in terms of uh, being able to define some molecular subtypes that are amenable to um, targeted therapies. But that certainly is an area that we are um, actively working on, as well as trying to improve the response to immunotherapies, which, is, which have transformed uh, a number of cells you hear about. Um, I'll stop there, and I'll look forward to uh, further discussion. Thank you. I am Li Wen Huang. I am a geriatric oncologist with a focus on malignant hematology, which means I care for older adults with blood cancers. So you'll hear a little bit more about blood cancers and a little bit self-focused on the geriatric oncology part. So geriatric oncology um, crosses disciplines in that most geriatric oncologists have a specific cancer type that they specialize in but the way we approach a patient um, is, is a little bit different. So about 70% of patients with cancer are age 65 or older. And the number of patients with cancer who are over age 65 is increasing rapidly due to the aging of the baby boomer generation. About one in three men over age 70 will develop cancer and about one in four women over age 70 um, will develop cancer in their lifetime. So despite the majority of cancer patients being older, older adults are actually um, dramatically underrepresented in cancer clinical trials, accounting for only about 10% or less of um, the National Cancer Institute-sponsored clinical trials. And clinical trials is the, is the way we get information about how to most effectively treat cancer patients. So this mismatch between who makes up the cancer population and who the actual cancer population is um, means caring for an older adult with cancer can be more difficult than caring for a younger adult with cancer because we just have less information about, a how, about how to treat them um, effectively and how well they'll tolerate um, the treatments that we have. And this lack of information means sometimes we err on the side of over-treatment if we treat an older adult with medical problems the same as a healthier, younger adult. Um, and they may end up having more side effects and stopping treatment early. Sometimes this means we err on the side of under-treatment because we assume an older adult won't tolerate the, you know, the, the best, um, strongest therapy, and we decide to give them something gentler um, and, but less effective or not treat them at all, when in fact they could have actually tolerated and would have benefited from a more effective treatment. And so one of the main goals of geriatric oncology is to figure out how we can improve how we treat older adults with cancer. And one of the ways we do this is by doing more comprehensive geriatric assessments of older adults to try to predict their risk of experiencing uh, different toxicities from the treatment. We often say that age is just a number and physiologic age is more important than the number of someone's chronologic age. So a 75-year-old who runs marathons is likely 
able to tolerate stronger treatments and a 60 year old who has heart disease and diabetes and a history of stroke and uses a walker to get around. So a comprehensive geriatric assessment is meant to go beyond just number of age and assess how fit someone is and how they may um, be able to tolerate the treatments that you're, you're planning. And um, one of the other main goals of geriatric oncology is just to promote and design more clinical trials that include more older adults um, and more of the, the real world uh, cancer patient population so that the information that we're getting from clinical trials is actually useful for, for the actual patients that we're seeing. Hi, so my name is Daniel Kwan and I'm a genital urinary medical oncologist. That means I, I deal with patients with cancers of the urinary tract and male reproductive organs. And I chose this path because I, I enjoy the variety in terms of both the patients and the different types of treatments. Um, so in terms of the urinary tract and the male reproductive organs, the urinary tract really starts the kidneys. And so we can start there with kidney cancer. Um, so the kidneys uh, are responsible for making urine and cancer can uh, occur there, although it's not very common. And so a lot of it is often caught incidentally on scans or if somebody has symptoms like pain in your sides um, or having some blood in the urine. The treatments can uh, range very widely. Um, if it's caught very early, like a little, little small spot, um, it can be cured uh, with surgery or ablation. Um, and sometimes we don't even need to treat it because it looks like it's growing so slowly. And we do something called active surveillance where we just monitor on scans and treat only if it happens to grow. If the cancer has spread far out, then we have a different set of treatments, uh, including systemic therapies like immunotherapies and different targeted treatments, which are mostly pills. Next down in terms of where the urine goes, it starts from the kidneys and then goes through little tubes called the ureters. And then it goes to a reservoir that collects the urine, which we all know about called the bladder. And so for the ureters and bladder, that's, this is a next, the, the, the next type of cancer I deal with. It's a pretty common type of cancer and it happens in both men and women. Uh, one major risk factor is smoking. Um, and kind of like kidney cancer, you, it can be caught when you have blood in the urine too. Uh, the treatments also uh, range pretty widely. If the cancer is still localized to the bladder or the ureters, um, we think about um, doing a surgery or a combination of chemotherapy with surgery and radiation so that the bladder can be preserved. This is also unique in, for bladder cancer if it's also a very localized cancer where we can actually put in a catheter through the penis, uh, I'm sorry, or, uh, uh, through, through the urethra, um, and then that catheter goes into the bladder and you could have installations of chemotherapy just sit inside the bladder and treat cancer in that way. The cancer has spread really far apart and far uh, from the bladder or the ureter. There are other treatments like chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted treatments. Next down, we have the prostate, and this is the most common cancer in men. And a lot of you might be familiar with a screening test for prostate cancer um, in order to catch this cancer early. Um, this screening test is a blood test called the PSA. Um, and it's recommended that there's a discussion with a primary care doctor about doing this starting at age 55, but this age might change based on your own risk factors. And so this cancer is usually caught early as part of screening. The treatment can range from, if it's very early, not doing any treatment, just doing surveillance by regular screening uh, uh, biopsies of the prostate, as well as different scans. 
Um, if it looks like we need to do a treatment, then it's usually either surgery or radiation. And if it's a bit more advanced, there's a huge diversity of different types of medicines. Um, one thing that's unique about prostate cancer is the cornerstone is hormone treatment, where we deprive the body of testosterone and starve the cancer to death. Um, that's because prostate depends on testosterone in order to grow and survive. And so you're basically starving it. And there's also chemotherapy, different targeted treatments, even a cancer vaccine called Provenge and various radioactive targeted treatments called lutetium, PSMA, and others. Next, we have testicular cancer, which is uncommon, but is actually the most common cancer in men between the ages of 20 and 40. Um, one big risk factor is having an undescended testes. Um, it's usually caught because the, the, the patient notices a lump in their testes. Uh, most cases are cured, uh, and that's over 90% of cases. And it's usually a combination of surgery, uh, chemotherapy, and radiation. And last but, but not least, we have an extremely rare type of cancer called penile cancer, which is a cancer of the penis. It's treated actually a lot like head and neck cancers, where you have a combination of chemotherapy with radiation um, versus surgery. Um, and if it happens to have metastasized, then usually just chemotherapy is used. Thanks so much, Dr. Kwan. Um, okay, so I um, have the pleasure of caring for patients with blood cancers, which is a unique type of cancer. It's a liquid cancer, as I described earlier, and that means that wherever it starts, whenever a person has a liquid cancer, as liquids are fluid, it wherever it is, it is also in other locations. So if the cancer, I say, is in the head, it's all also in the toes, just by the dynamic of what liquid liquid substance is like. So blood cancers affect the production and function of blood cells. Most of these cancers start in the bone marrow where the blood is produced. Stem cells in the bone marrow mature and develop into three different types of blood cells, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. And in most blood cancers, the normal blood cell development process is interrupted by uncontrolled growth of an abnormal type of blood cell. These abnormal blood cells or cancerous cells prevent the blood or bone marrow from prevent performing its functions like fighting off infections or preventing serious bleeding. There's three main types of blood cancers and they come in different names. And what I say flavors, they come in the acute type, which is really intense, very rapidly growing process needs to be treated very rapidly and patient people can start feeling well one day to being really ill a few days later usually curable as well even though it's pretty aggressive in its presentation it's uh, something it's it's a reason why all malignant hematologists work on the inpatient side and care for several patients care for a big service on the inpatient side because many patients present with pretty aggressive presentations of their blood related leukemias so leukemia is a type of cancer found in the blood and bone marrow and caused by a rapid production of abnormal white blood cells. The high number of abnormal white blood cells are not able to fight infection and they impair the ability of the bone marrow to produce red blood cells and platelets. As mentioned, it comes in two main types, acute and chronic. 
The acute subtype comes in the names as acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoid leukemia. The really fascinating diseases originate within the bone marrow treated with high doses of chemotherapy. In blood-related cancers, we don't use very frequently other modalities of treatment such as radiation or surgery. Sometimes we use radiation, but re very rarely do we ever need surgery to help uh, treat these types of diseases since, again, they're liquid, so it's hard to excise anything when it is already in several locations. Some varieties of leukemia are chronic, which are very low-grade processes, sometimes don't need treatment for many, 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 many years, but still have the, the name of the diagnosis of leukemia. The second main type of blood cancer is lymphoma. It's a type of blood cancer which affects the lymphatic system. Um, and lymphocytes are types of white blood cells that, again, help us fight infections. Abnormal lymphocytes can become lymphoma cells, can multiply and collect in the lymph nodes and other tissues. Over time, these cancerous cells can impair the immune system. So if you're hearing a trend here in these malignant hematology-based diagnoses, there is a, an effect, a negative effect to the, uh, to the immune system itself due to the nature of these diseases. Lymphomas also are really interesting. They come in two main subtypes. Um, they come in the aggressive subtype and the more indolent subtype, so lower, lower grade process, something that may not require treatment for several years. The aggressive type of lymphoma always requires treatment, and that comes in two separate main categories, Hodgkin lymphoma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And the third main type of blood cancers are myeloma or multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of a specific type of white blood cell called a plasma cell. These plasma cells produce different types of immunoglobulins or proteins, which are detected within the bloodstream. It has its own separate type of presentation, including bone defects. It can cause bone injury and sometimes fractures and very high protein levels and kidney issues. All of these different types of malignant hematology diagnosis typically require for the aggressive types chemotherapy. It's a very unique cancer in that we are using um, an immunotherapy very rapidly in these diseases. We have really exciting CAR-T type therapy to really harness the immune system to fight these cancers. And some of these cancers are very curable, but especially with our new types of novel therapies, which are harnessing our immune system, we're able to cure more and more of these malignancies. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nehrika Dixit. I am a general oncologist, which means I care for people with all types of cancer. Um, I work at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, where I provide care for low-income residents of San Francisco. In addition to the stage and type of cancer, type of treatment, cancer outcomes like who gets and who survives cancer, and the quality of life of uh, people who get treatment for cancer is determined by many factors. We call them social determinants of health. These include race, ethnicity, income, health insurance, education level, language spoken, zip code, etc. For example, in the city of San Francisco, Black African American women are more likely to die of breast cancer, and women in low income and racially and ethnically diverse neighborhoods are more likely to be diagnosed with higher stage of breast cancer. People with the greatest need and least resources require more, not equal access to care and resources. Matching their healthcare resources to the healthcare need is called healthcare equity. 
We have a great multidisciplinary team at uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, also called CSFG, that evaluates and addresses these social determinants of health. These includes navigators, social workers, nurses, and medical care assistants. The partnership between CSFG and US, UCSF is critical in this endeavor. The goal of work that we do um, is number one, to ensure access to high quality cancer care for all, irrespective of their ability to pay, and to ensure that people who are currently receiving treatment or have completed treatment for cancer remain as free as possible from treatment side effects and can enjoy good quality of life. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Katie Sai, and I am a melanoma oncologist here at UCSF. Um, what that means is that I specialize in taking care of patients who have been diagnosed with advanced melanoma, or on occasion, um, other more rare types of skin cancer, such as squamous cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma, or Merkel cell carcinoma. Um, some of you may already know that uh, melanoma is so named because it comes from melanocytes or pigment producing cells that live in our skin um, that uh, mutate and become cancerous. Uh, I think most people think of melanoma as a black spot that you see on the skin um, that comes, across, comes about fairly infrequently, um, but it may surprise you to learn that melanoma is actually the fifth most common cancer type in both men and women in the United States. Um, and exposure to ultraviolet radiation is a, a known and uh, well-established risk factor. Um, even though melanoma um, is, uh, could be considered relatively common, I think it's uh, really important to point out that uh, because uh, it actually accounts for uh, the majority of skin cancer deaths in the US, uh, that prompt uh, diagnosis and appropriate treatment is super important. Um, for people who are fortunate enough to have this diagnosed at an early stage, uh, meaning that it is just sitting on the surface of the skin and not uh, deeply invasive into the deeper layers of the skin. Uh, surgery is the mainstay of treatment. So hopefully it's something that can be removed um, and uh, therefore, and afterwards people can continue to receive surveillance through their dermatologist. Um, for folks who may have more invasive melanoma and we're concerned about a high risk of recurrence, um, or uh, if the melanoma unfortunately has already spread to different parts of the body, uh, that is where uh, drug therapy, such as the tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, and the immunotherapies that Dr. Aurora mentioned earlier come into play. We know that uh, chemothera chemotherapy, specifically cytotoxic chemotherapy, actually doesn't work that well in advanced melanoma. Uh, and so we try our very best to avoid uh, using chemotherapy in our melanoma patients. Um, certainly, um, you know, the use of immunotherapy has been super exciting um, uh, since its approval about 10 years ago. And so even though there are still a lot of places to do better, um, certainly in melanoma survivorship and then finding new treatment options for people who need those even after immunotherapy, uh, it still remains a super exciting space. Uh, and I look forward to uh, forthcoming uh, research in that area. Thank you. Awesome. So you all just heard from a panel of some of my favorite people at UCSF. Don't tell the other oncologists I said that. Um, so you heard about a bunch of different types of cancer and various um, uh, aspects of uh, these different fields. Uh, I want to transition now to our Q&A, which we'll do for the next 20 minutes or so. 
Um, there are already a few questions that have accumulated, so I'll start with those. And anyone who has questions, please feel free to put them in the Q&A using the button at the bottom of your screen. Um, because we have uh, several panelists, I'm going to be a little directive about who the questions are going to. And to the panelists, um, I've been asked to ask you all to keep your videos off as you have them, unless you're speaking, and you can switch it on at that point and then turn it off again. Um, and I'll ask panelists to keep answers pretty brief if possible. Um, the first question I have uh, comes from the chat, and I just didn't want to miss it. Um, and this will be for Dr. Huppert about um, triple negative breast cancer. And the question is basically asking, you know, triple negative breast cancer is a pretty aggressive type of breast cancer. Have there been any recent developments in treating this aggressive type of breast cancer? Thank you so much for that excellent question. Um, definitely triple negative breast cancer is an area where we're keenly um, excited about um, upcoming developments. Um, I think one um, recent development in triple negative breast cancer has been the use of immunotherapy, um, which Dr. Sai was just talking about a second ago in melanoma. Um, we've now moved that over and um, pembrolizumab, one of the PD-1 inhibitors, is now approved for both early stage and metastatic um, triple negative breast cancer and improves both um, progression-free survival and overall survival in patients um, in, this, in the studies that um, evaluated it. So we're really excited about that. And I think another really exciting area in triple negative breast cancer is the use of these drugs called, or these agents called antibody drug conjugates, um, which are like chemotherapy agents, but they're more directed at the cancer cells. Um, and so we're using those in triple negative breast cancer, but also being studied in other cancer types. Um, so I think that's definitely a class of medications that we'll continue to see exciting, exciting results from in the future. Great. Thank you. Um, so a couple more questions have come up. This one's going to be for Dr. Huang um, and is about uh, tools in uh, oncology. Can you speak to any validated health tools used in practice in concert with clinical judgment that might be used to evaluate a patient's fitness or ability to receive aggressive therapy and maybe help develop a treatment plan? So there are several validated, uh, many validated tools that we, um, that can be included in a comprehensive geriatric assessment. Um, and also just, a, um, just to give a summary, a comprehensive geriatric assessment will you know, ideally include assessment of someone's functional status. So like how um, you know, if they're able to independently get around, do their own groceries, do their own chores, manage their checkbook, um, use a telephone. Um, these are called, you know, in instrumental activities of daily living. There's also activities of daily living, um, which are, you know, can you get dressed yourself? Can you feed yourself? Um, can you manage your own hygiene? And these are tools that have come from the field of geriatrics that we're using increasingly oncology. Um, geriatric assessments will also ideally assess for you know, number of falls, cognitive status or your thinking ability, mental health, um, nutritional status, and, um, and social support. Um, and there's validated tools in each of these areas that um, can be used to assess if the patient may be more vulnerable to certain side effects of um, aggressive therapy. And sometimes an oncologist may choose to reduce a dose or not use a certain drug, or they may, um, they may recommend, you know, additional physical therapy for someone who is um, found to be more frail, have some um, impaired functional status from the geriatrics. Thank you so much. And there are many other tools out there, probably, and Dr. Huang is expert in several, and especially in some used for uh, older patients. 
Um, the next question I'm going to uh, toss to Dr. Ko. Um, this question asks to discuss precancerous lesions or dysplasia and the relationship to cancer. And I'll just say that there are precancerous and dysplastic lesions across many types of cancer, but I'm hoping Dr. Ko could maybe comment on polyps and other kind of precancerous lesions in colon cancer or other GI cancers. Yeah, sure. And it's a good question because uh, cancer often arises through a multi-step process where you go from normal cells to sort of these intermediate or precursor lesions that have the potential of becoming full-blown invasive cancer. So as classic examples, you can take um, dysplasia, which basically means very abnormal appearing cells that haven't yet gotten the potential and ability to invade or metastasize, but again, are in, on the way of getting there. And some examples for that would be if uh, the audience has heard about um, Barrett's esophagus. So that's basically um, a process by which cells lining the esophagus start becoming abnormal. And when there's dysplasia, of which there can be sort of low grade, meaning slightly abnormal to higher grade dysplasia, it's when you get to higher grade dysplasia that really the risk of developing full-blown cancer is high enough that you want to do something about it. And a similar analogy can be made for dys dysplastic lesions of the anal canal. Um, so that's not, again, not actual cancer, but if left unchecked and untreated, there is an increased risk of that becoming uh, actual invasive cancer with all its associated morbidity. And then probably the most common, as Dr. Bronfield alluded to, is um, polyps in the colon. So when you're getting a colonoscopy for screening purposes, you're doing it not to try to catch actual invasive cancer. You're trying to catch it um, before um, these lesions turn into actual cancer. And that's where we think about polyps, which again, take many different forms. But what we're really talking are these, what we call adenomatous polyps that have this high-grade dysplasia, um, because those are the ones that really are at risk if left um, alone or aren't removed, uh, can uh, become uh, invasive and, and potentially dangerous. So um, as Sam alluded to, there are many different types of cancers that go through this process um, and finding them and having screening tools to be able to identify them in their pre-malignant states um, where there are still sort of these dysplastic or abnormal lesions is a key towards um, uh, prevention. The next question I'm going to throw to Dr. Kwan. Um, this is about early stage prostate cancer and survival. Um, could you comment on stage one prostate cancer survival um, for men and wondering if there's any uh, shift in those outcomes over time? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, especially as I don't routinely see these patients. Um, but I, I can tell you that the survival rates for stage one prostate cancer are very high. Um, I would say uh, over 90% at five years, uh, for example. And the survival is so great that, as I mentioned in my talk, what is becoming uh, more recognized is that do all these people even need to get any sort of treatment like surgery and radiation? Because a lot of these patients might not end up even, even having symptoms or dying from the prostate cancer, but they definitely will have symptoms and complications or side effects from the treatments they get. And so a, a very small fraction of these stage one patients don't actually need uh, treatment and can do fine just getting active surveillance by getting routine biopsies and imaging and PSA checks over time. Terrific. Yeah, early stage prostate cancer being one of the best survival rates among cancers that I'm aware of. Um, so next question in the Q&A, I'll throw this one to Dr. Dixit. 
Um, the uh, person is asking, is anyone here involved in assessing health-related quality of life in survivors? So I do work in cancer survivorship, and um, there are times when we assess health-related quality of life in survivors. Um, there are different measures, for example, um, the FACG, FACB scores, the European uh, group has a quality of life survey. Many of these are very long and not always friendly to make them more actionable in the clinics, clinical setting. So one of the discussions that we are thinking about in talking with other uh, cancer survivors and patient advocates is to how to make this assessment or quality of life uh, factor assessment or calling it needs assessment and how to make it more actionable so that we can actually address what cancer survivors need. Thank you so much. And actually, just while I have you, another question popped up that I would love to ask you. Do we know why certain cancers are more common among certain races? Uh, and the person who's asking gives the example of saying um, they recall hearing that uh, esophageal cancer may be more common in Asian people. Um, I'm aware of, of that, that association with gastric cancer. Curious, Dr. Dixit, if you have other thoughts on that question. So we do see um, some cancers more common in, uh, for example, people from a location, people from, um, from a certain race, for example, or higher, for example, even melanoma, MGUS is higher in Black African-American patients. And so we see that some of them we don't understand very well. Um, Sometimes we talk about diet, for example, and I think Dr. Koch could address it better in terms of like esophageal and gastric cancer. For example, smoked food is blamed for that or other type of dietary factor. So definitely people share dietary factor, but people also share environment. For example, are there risk factors within the environment, exposure to carcinogenic chemicals, et cetera, if they're what people call as cancer cluster. So it's not only, for example, dietary habits, but also sharing the risk factors. Um, whether that's environmental, whether it's social. Thanks so much. Um, I'll ask this next question to Dr. Raghavan. Um, Someone is asking, if you could wave a magic wand, what single environmental factor would you maybe get rid of or try to reduce um, to try to reduce the risk of cancer? And is there any progress in that area that you can talk about? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a tough question. Um, I think, you know, there's, I'll preface it by saying, I think there's a lot of environmental factors that we can't characterize the risk, um, you know, those factors on cancer. We think there probably is a risk of pollutants and, um, you know, other environmental factors, but we probably don't have enough data yet to characterize those risks. Um, I think the ones that we can characterize are, you know, certainly like cigarette use with multiple types of cancers. I think that's, you know, as was mentioned, um, you know, alcohol use is another one. Um, I think tobacco is one that's really common a lot, you know, across a lot of cancer types. And I think we have made a lot of progress and um, in um, sort of, um, you know, our efforts to reduce tobacco use, um, you know, in this country, rates of smoking are going down, you know, across genders, across race and ethnicity. Um, but I think there's still work to be done in that area. Um, so I would say of the ones of the environmental factors that we know, um, I think, you know, more efforts in that in, in that area could go a long way. Terrific. Um, there's a question in the Q&A asking about cancer vaccines and just to talk about them. 
Um, there have been several different types of cancer vaccines. And I, I'm going to ask maybe one or two people to talk about cancer vaccines in their field. And you can yell at me if I've uh, misappropriated a vaccine to your field. But I'm wondering, Dr. Sai, if you might have any comment on cancer vaccines in the field of cutaneous oncology. Thanks, Dr. Brownfield. Um, I think maybe I'll preface this with the um, uh, the idea that cancer vaccines has been around for a long time and probably deserves a whole seminar um, on its own. Um, but at least within a cutaneous oncology or the melanoma field, um, I think um, maybe taking a page since we're in the era of COVID, I think the vaccines work really well um, in infections and also in cancer types where there is a primary target, so to speak, um, a known protein that is responsible for uh, causing um, the, uh, the um, for prompting uh, the cancer or in the case of COVID, you know, uh, the spike protein, which we know um, plays a large role in how infectious uh, COVID is. Um, the problem in melanoma hasn't been in identifying what exactly that protein should be. Um, is it a protein that is seen across all melanomas or only in some melanomas? Um, and if we pick a protein that is seen only in some melanomas, um, then you can see how that would make this particular approach not very effective across all types of melanoma. Um, so I think you know one exciting area that is coming uh, into clinical trials uh, is an mRNA vaccine approach um, to treating melanoma. Um, the companies that have been responsible for making the mRNA vaccines for COVID, um, that approach actually um, was first applied in trying to find uh, an effective cancer vaccine. Um, so thankfully, they've been focusing the efforts on churning out COVID vaccines. Um, hopefully, uh, soon they'll be able to have bandwidth uh, to uh, focus on applying that technology back in the melanoma world and hopefully other cancer types too. So very brief answer for a not very uh, brief topic, um, but hopefully that is sufficient for now. No, that was perfect. And Dr. Kong, I was wondering if you might have any comments about cancer vaccines in head and neck cancer? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple of meanings in cancer vaccine where for the field of head and neck cancer, actually we do have a cancer vaccine, which is an HPV vaccine. And um, it is primarily developed to prevent cervical cancer, but it does prevent head and neck cancers as well. So we hope that it can decrease incidence of head and neck cancer in the future. But unfortunately, the uptake rate of HPV vaccine is not very high, especially among boys. So, you know, the future doesn't look that bright. So that, that that's one layer. And as Dr. Sai had laid out, um, the mRNA cancer vaccines are uh, looks very promising, if, like in many fields. And in, uh, and especially we are, people are developing personalized cancer vaccines. So uh, we look at the genes of the cancer and finding clues which uh, proteins will solve as an antigen and develop an mRNA vaccine targeting that particular protein, which uh, will become a real personalized approach. One problem is that it takes time to decipher the cancer genes and develop the vaccine. And so, um, a lot of times the time is a constraint in, in uh, delivering those type of treatment, but we are making progress uh, in that regard. Awesome. I think that uh, was all of our panelists who I hopefully got to contribute to this Q&A. Um, thank you all so much for contributing. There are a couple other questions in the chat, including one about 
uh, CT scans and lung cancer. I'm just going to um, defer that because we're going to have a whole session um, or at least components of sessions on imaging and cancer and radiation. So we'll definitely circle back to that. Um, we only have a couple minutes left in this session, so I just wanted to take the opportunity to wrap us up. Um, first of all, thanking all of our panelists for your awesome contributions today, and uh, Dr. Aurora for a fantastic introductory talk uh, to this course. Um, thank you all so much for your time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.